Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education, where we dive deep into the world of virtual reality for teaching and learning. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Nathan O'Grady. Nathan is the virtual reality lead at King's Inter High. So in a world where many teachers are still delivering a traditional model of lecture, practice, usually through worksheets, and maybe a test, Nathan is totally committed to trying to provide a greater variety of lesson delivery in his courses. So he's here today to help us unpack this notion that, you know, what, what is rigor and should rigor just be this traditional drill and kill model? So welcome to the show, Nathan. Thanks, Craig. It's good to be here. I always like to start with an origin story, which is what got you interested and excited about using VR? I guess it's sort of a long and mixed road. So Part of it comes from the fact that my dad, when I was young, was an IT technician. And so inherently, he was interested in all the tech that was coming out then. Um, Quite early on, he was showing me how to take apart computers. And so I became interested in anything that was new and shiny tech ways. Um, For me, one of the big things was gaming. Um, And what I found is it must have been about 10 years ago, 2013, uh, the Oculus Rift dev kits came out. And I feel like that was the point where virtual reality really started to come into the mainstream. And it wasn't quite there yet, but it was always in my mind then, having used it once, that this was going to be something that was going to come around 10 years later, perhaps, um, and be quite big. And then sort of fast forward through various jobs as a technician myself and then into education. Um, I find myself now in a position where I work with a team of learning innovators at King's Intai. And a couple of years ago, I was asked if I could try out this Quest 2 headset and see if there was merit there for education. Um, And lo and behold, I tried out various different experiences and created a few things myself. And we're now in this position where we're using it every day at the school to enhance learning. Amazing. And one of the reasons I reached out to you was a post that you had on LinkedIn and it showed a whole bunch of pictures and it had a write-up about you using VR for I'm going to pause for effect here, a whopping 39 classes. And to put context, this was for a very highly content-heavy IB diploma class. So talk a bit more about that post and, you know, the subject that you used it for and maybe a few examples, even though we'll probably unpack more later. So Kings into High is quite unique in that it's a completely online school. And so... Being able to do the International Baccalaureate in a completely online format is something that's quite new. I think we're one of two schools that they're trying out that uh, that approach with. So one of the key factors in the International Baccalaureate, of course, traditionally, is that there are a lot of practical things that students need to be able to do. And so from our experimentation with VR and the confidence that we'd grown with it, we convinced the IB that actually we could do some of those activities just as well using virtual reality as you could do in a traditional classroom, if not better. And so last year was when we started doing this in the IB courses. And I think across the year, we did something like 60 lessons. And we were really proud of that because 
from going from nothing to 60 seemed really big. Um, so you can imagine my surprise when I sat and counted up the number we'd done in one half term this year and the number turned out to be about 39. And actually next half term, we've got about 50 on the docket. So it's something that's really grown for us. I think the most exciting thing is the answer to your question about which subject, because actually we've used virtual reality in every IB subject that we offer. So some of the obvious ones are the ones that we started with, the geography, so you can travel anywhere in the world, the history, you can go back in time, the sciences. But actually, we found that any subject can use virtual reality in some way to enhance. And I'm sure we'll come to it a little bit later, but that's sort of the key facet for us is that when we use this technology, it has to be to enhance, not just to mimic a lesson that you could otherwise do through our virtual classroom or in a traditional classroom, but in some way make it better. And so that's sort of our ethos behind it. Well said. And are the kids uh, all in headsets or is there a variety? Some are on the computer, some actually have their headset that they're using. Tell us a bit more about what medium or modality they're using. So across the whole school where we use virtual reality, some of it is sort of the, the pseudo virtual reality. So some of them are on a desktop. Some of the browser based activities you can do are very good. Um, but the IB students specifically are all in headset. And so every virtual reality lesson they do, they join us in headset. And I think that's really important because although these experiences are great in a 2D format, a bit like playing a video game, I suppose, to see things in that all around you 3D form, specifically the scale of things is really important. And actually what's really quite cool is that where you had the distractions in the traditional classroom. So for example, anyone who's been a teacher in a traditional classroom will know as soon as it starts snowing outside, you've <laughs> lost the kids for two minutes because they've got to go and look at the snow. And when actually you put on the headset and the whole world is your lesson and there's nothing in that world that is aside from your lesson, it's all focused on the topic. I think that adds something before you even talk about what the experiences are. It really adds that everybody is locked in and focused for that 30 minutes on exactly what they need to be learning about. Yeah. And they're not worried about their phones or, you know, we've all been through uh, computer based Zoom calls, and I'm sure everyone can put up their hand to say, yep, I was multitasking, and but you can't really multitask in a headset, so well said. I used to teach a IB class. It was uh, for grade, in, grade 11 and 12 students, and as I kind of alluded to at the start of the show, the curriculum is very packed with content, and not only that, but at the end of the two-year IB course, Kids do have uh, exams that they have to worry about, which are external. So when you talk to teachers who are IB diploma program teachers, there many of them would say, "I just don't have I don't have time for VR." You know, they're so focused on trying to get them ready for these high stakes external exams. Yet you guys are flipping it on its head, and you're saying that. These lessons that we give to kids have to have a variety in them, not just as I alluded to this traditional model of here's the content, okay, practice it on a worksheet or practice it on like a project and then move on. So tell me more about why you guys aren't worried about this sort of regime that the, a rigorous curriculum can't be taught in a variety of different modalities. I think part of it comes down to the ethos of when we do a VR lesson and some of it comes down to the logistics. 
So as I said before, every VR lesson we do has to in some way either facilitate or enhance a learning experience. So the facilitate part very much comes from the online school factor. And it's things like where students need to do a science experiment. We don't have a physical lab. We need to facilitate that experiment still being possible. So that's sort of the simple part of the puzzle. The enhanced part is all about the IEB student profiles and making sure that actually if a student needs to learn, let's say, what's a good example? We've been having English students learning about William Blake and reading the poems of William Blake and looking at his artwork is very good. And you can begin to understand the sort of mindset he might have had. We enhance that lesson by presenting those poems and artworks in a recreation of 17th century London so that students could not only begin to sort of pick apart those poems and understand what it was that he might have been trying to get at, but they could see the smog in London. They could see that it was dirty. They could see that there was quite a, a distinct class system and they could begin to understand from experiencing what he had seen and felt uh, they gained a better understanding of why he might have been writing in the way that he was. And so things like that, where there's a genuine way to enhance what's being learned that isn't taking away from lesson time, but is actually adding something more that the teacher would otherwise find challenging to convey. That's where we find it useful. The logistical side of it is a case of, it's, it's a two-way street for us. So teachers come to us with an idea so the teacher wants to teach about William Blake, the poetry. They want students to have a better idea of what inspired him to write in the way he was. And then we've got this learning innovation team at Kings into Hyde because the school, and quite correctly, is very committed to technology enhancing learning. And so they've invested in this, who have the ability to create. And I think those people meeting in the middle is where it really works because teachers know what they need, but they don't necessarily have the time. And that's the key thing that we knew we had to hit straight away was if we go to teachers and ask them to start building one VR lesson a week, and that takes them a few hours on top of everything else they have to do, it will be a non-starter. They, they simply don't have the time, but they've got the concept and that's important. So combining someone with the concept with somebody who's got the time and the ability to do the creative part, putting that together is what's really worked for us and made sure that all of the experience are both consistently good quality wise, but also every single time they're hitting the exact objectives that the teacher is looking for. There are a few things that make VR so amazing. One, of course, and you've talked a lot about this already, and that is wrapping the learner in a contextually relevant environment, like the William Blake story that you just told. And the other thing is adding 3D models and 3D assets that students might be able to interact with, think more deeply about, like sorting or moving or manipulating this is a bit of a debatable question. Which of those two tends to be more important to you right now at the stage you're at with helping teachers develop their VR lessons? I think that in any VR lesson, just as in any lesson, the objectives have to come first. If you're not achieving the objectives, it doesn't matter how cool a space looks, how impressive the space looks, how well it runs. Any of this doesn't matter unless the objectives are hit. I think that being said, the more authentic you can make these lessons um, by having the right models and things in place, the better. And sometimes it's a little bit of abstract creative thinking. So, you know, just having your colliders in the right place so that the student is guided through the experience in the way you want them to. And that stuff is important. Um, but I think it all comes down to why are we doing this lesson? And just as much as we've got 
a hundred VR lessons that teachers are teaching, there are 20 or 30 that are ideas that came across the desk that were scrapped because ultimately when it came down to it, we were just going to emulate what could otherwise be done in their normal virtual classroom. And if it's not adding, we didn't see fit to use the time and indeed to waste the teacher and the student's time on those experiences. So I think having it really curated and understanding that the spaces only exist to complement the objectives, that's the way around that we like to do it. Is there an optimal time frame that you try and target a VR lesson in order to, you know, we talk about Zoom fatigue and obviously that can be a thing inside VR. I haven't seen any research, Nathan, to say that there is, you know, a hard, fast rule on how many minutes a student should be in VR, but do you guys have a ballpark that you try and hit? Yeah, so generally our lessons are 40 minutes long, which is quite short anyway. Um, And generally we try and aim for about 25 to 30 minutes in VR. So the teacher will first gather the students in the normal classroom. They'll explain the objectives before they come in, because we know as well as anybody that as soon as the students come into a new VR space, the first thing they're going to do is explore, because there's always that wow factor. And in fact, that was the easiest part when we were setting about doing virtual reality lessons at the school was we didn't really need to prove that there was going to be an engagement factor. It was quite clear that as soon as anybody, teacher or student, put on the headset and was in a world, they were going to be engaged. But we'll have that five minutes at the start explaining the objectives, and then there'll be five or ten minutes at the end of the lesson where the teacher can wrap up that lesson back in the classroom, webcams on, everybody can see each other, and really sort of nail the purpose of the experience the students have just had. I think it'd be really easy to get students straight into VR at the beginning of a lesson and then the lesson finishes and they all leave. But I think having that wrap up at the end and coming back to quote unquote reality and closing the lesson with the objectives once again and making sure that the students are aware that although they may have just had a fun, active 20 minute lesson, there was also a key purpose to it. I think that's really valuable. Um, the, The VR we always tell the teachers is very much intended as a tool in their arsenal as opposed to a replacement for anything traditional they do. Without the teachers, the experiences don't have the value. It's got to be a combination of the two. Did you find it took a bit of routine to to create a routine first? And so I'll tell a story and then you can sort of uh, back up this. We had a group of students and we had connected with a school in Ontario, Canada, who had built these beautiful indigenous spaces, these indigenous virtual worlds. And uh, the curriculum here where we're at is heavily committed to getting students to understand the plight of the indigenous people here in Canada. So we wanted to take a group of students to visit these indigenous worlds and kind of take a tour and it would be hosted by someone on the other end. And the mistake that we had made was this was the first time that the students were in VR and we, we ended up, it was a bit of a failure because they were so excited and they had a hard time listening to the speaker talk about the indigenous worlds. So behavior was a bit of a problem. How are you seeing that? Has that become more routine now for the teachers and the students that, you know, they don't, you know, they settle in and they listen to the lesson a lot easier? Or do you always have to prompt them at the beginning of the lesson in regards to behavior? So 
it's interesting because this year was the first time that I can remember where we've actually had to do training for students on a piece of software. Um, they use all sorts of software, of course, to complement their learning across the school. Uh, but virtual reality being so unique, and as you say, it, it, it's exciting and new to begin with. The training was for two purposes, really. It was partly to give them the tools so they understood when they got into a lesson how to do everything they were going to need to do. But it was also to give them that sort of two-hour opportunity. And they weren't in for a full two hours. They were sort of in a room like we're speaking now, and then a little bit of VR, and then we come back and talk about what they've just seen and done, what they're going to do next. But over those few training sessions, it just got the novelty bit out of the way. And we knew that was going to be really important. Otherwise, whichever poor teacher had the first VR lesson, they were <laughs> undoubtedly going to do a great job. But they were also going to have kids running around, you know, excited. IB students naturally are older students, but it's still exciting when you put on the headset and you're in a completely new place. And it's all it is all new and exciting. And I think every lesson that we do uh, and because they are all different and they are all bespoke, there is a couple of minutes at the start where the students are just exploring the space. And I think that comes back interestingly to the question you asked about what's more important, hitting the objectives or getting the right you know, visuals and the right models in place. And it's little things like understanding. So one of the things I do when I go to build a VR lesson is a really small thing is as soon as I spawn into a space, I put a red arrow on the floor. And the whole point of that is from everything I build, I know exactly when the student spawns in what they're going to see first. So if the student is very much objective based, they can spawn in looking at the objectives. If they're doing an art lesson, it's quite straightforward because you give them a focus piece straight away that is right there for them. And so it's something that is very much still a learning experience for us, I think. Um, but I think also the fact that it's being done across all of the subjects and there's not like a, a set every week where you will do exactly free VR lessons, but because it's consistent, the students come, they know that they've got their objectives to achieve that day. They are old enough to understand the expectation of professionalism. And so there isn't really that much of a behavior issue with those older IB students because we've taken steps to sort of ensure it. And of course, we gave them a little bit of a briefing about the correct etiquette in VR and stuff as well. The things that aren't immediately obvious, like giving people personal space. And I mean, that that ourselves was something that we learned when we started bringing teachers in. And of course, everybody spawns in the same place, are stacked, and then there's panic. And it's like, okay, so when the kids get in here, we need to make sure that hmm. we explain to them, if you're this far away from the person in real life to talk to them, be that far away in VR. So I think it's an ongoing learning experience, but setting out the expectations, I think just like you would in a normal classroom, is key to making sure that those kids are focused when they get into your lesson too. When some teachers and schools start to explore and investigate VR, they naturally look at vendors. So they'll see, hmm, they'll Google search, you know, VR experience for Shakespeare. And often what will pop up is some company has maybe devised something that is uh, not bespoke or not customized necessarily to the school's curriculum. And that's where they start. And, you know, they might try it out, but at the end of the day, many of them say, well, it doesn't quite align with, you know, my unit and the learning outcomes that I need. Whereas you guys are taking the opposite approach. You're doing things in-house. You're working one-on-one -on -one with the teacher to ensure that the experience is completely aligned with what the teacher really wants. And I, I call this the Google Doc moment. The Go when Google Docs came out and 
it became a lot easier for either teachers or people like you to change and adapt and customize quite quickly a worksheet. More and more teachers started to use instead of textbooks that were from a vendor or workbooks that we purchased and then brought into the school, we started to just make our own and we had that ownership and agency. So how close are you right now? You're designing a lot of these. How close do you feel you are at eventually even allowing other teachers, even though they're busy, to to try and do this as well? So we've got some teachers that are at that point already, and it's very much a, a comfort thing. So the the general starting point for teachers that are totally new to it for us is that they will go ahead and lead their lesson once it's built. And we'll have someone in the background just to handle the tech stuff, just to make sure that it's as straightforward as possible for them. It's a, bit, a little bit like what I was saying earlier about the time factor. And if we'd asked teachers to build every lesson, it would have been a non-starter. I think making it as easy as possible and telling teachers that you need to arrive in the VR classroom and do the same outstanding teaching you would do in your normal classroom in a new medium. And that's it. And as they go on, of course, they gain confidence and they start asking about where the tools are and asking how to do new things. And so we've kind of let it grow organically in a way that is comfortable for the teachers so that they're not feeling it as another job to do or a pressure point on top of everything else that they need to do. So we certainly encourage teachers if they feel that they would like to do some of the building themselves and if they want to learn how to new, use the new tools, we absolutely encourage them to do so. But the pressure isn't there. The, the key thing for us is every lesson being outstanding. And provided a teacher can show up in the VR classroom and deliver their outstanding lesson, that works just fine for us. And I think it works perfectly for the students. Are most of the experiences live or synchronous? Or do you also roll out some asynchronous experiences where the student can log on and either on their own or with maybe a friend go into a room and do uh, asynchronous learning? So all of the lessons that we do at the moment are synchronous. And the main reason for that is this factor of the VR lesson doesn't work without the teacher. And equally, you know, the teacher, well, the teacher can work without the VR lesson, but the VR lesson enhances their delivery. It's a symbiotic for us. And so we've, we've sort of played with the idea of doing some asynchronous opportunities for students certainly we've we've been trying that out with some of the sort of recordings you can do in vr in 360 and go okay so if we can capture what the teacher is saying during the lesson and then offer that as an experience could that work it's not something we're doing actively right now but it's certainly not something we're against but it, it all comes back down to the teacher is a key part of the experience i could go away and i could make the most wonderful virtual reality world that demonstrates, I don't know, a, a facet of rivers in geography. And I might make the most brilliant virtual reality river that anybody's ever seen. But unless there's a teacher in the room to give that context and explain what the purpose of it is, it doesn't work the way it should. One thing we have been doing, however, is we've been encouraging the student council at IB level to begin to build some things for themselves for social experiences. Mm. And so the students have been beginning to learn the tool set. They'll send emails after they've had a lesson and go, you had this really interesting feature in the lesson that you just delivered to us. How did you do that? And so actually that's a really nice dynamic part of it too, because we focused very strongly initially on how can we achieve learning objectives in VR. 
But one of the other things that's really key for us as an online school, of course, is giving students that all important social element. Yes. And so that began with us doing sort of end of term events. And we still do those end of term events to bring the students together in a bit more of a low stakes environment. But the students taking ownership of that, I think, has been a really key piece of evidence for us that not only is this type of learning resonating with them, but they they actively want more of this. They want to engage with this. And that's something that we sort of expected because virtual reality is you know a little bit like gaming it's something that entices young people anyway it's naturally engaging and exciting but the fact that they want to use it in a formal way for a purpose that's really exciting because not only is that showing they are committed to the platform but it's also building skills that they're going to need in future jobs that maybe don't exist yet people still comment on my job title as virtual reality lead and go that's a job i wish existed when i was younger and it's like <laughs> Well, yeah, these these kids need to have these skills because a lot of the jobs are going to be AI, virtual reality when they finish school. So that's really key. I love your notion of, you know, learning works best when there's actually a teacher in the room. Because what I found uh, with some of these platforms like Minecraft and Roblox is that, you know, a, a kid or a student can go home and create like an instance or a server and they can invite their friends to play in Roblox or Minecraft. And they're sort of, there is no adult in that area or in the room, so to speak. And they kind of get used to just, not, just playing. So I tried to use, for example, Roblox at one of the schools I was at. And it was really hard because their, their mindset is that these are playgrounds or places not for learning, but for me, just without an adult to play around. And so, you know, it's almost like trying to pull it back or bring it back in and, and try and get them to see that, okay, these, these uh, worlds that we're using can be and should be for learning, but you need the adult there to set that tone, set that ethos. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a really big advocate for encouraging kids to play the right kind of video games at home, because there are a number of games that are really positive for education. You know, one of my favorites is City Skylines, which is the sort of the new version of SimCity, if you like. But if you're if you've got a geography student who is really interested in city planning or, you know, policies or whatever it may be, you've got a game there that is there on a platter that they can go and play and you can encourage them to play that rather than something that is less appropriate for their age group. You're achieving two things because actually you're not taking away their hobby for gaming, you're, but you're promoting that hobby and also encouraging them to do a little bit of educational stuff as well. And so if you can ask them the next time you see them, what have they done in cities since they last saw you? And they can tell you all of these policies they've enacted across their city. They've had a good time playing their game, but they've also taken something away from it. And I think that's the challenge with games like the ones you mentioned. So Minecraft and Roblox is if you go into a sandbox game and there's no direction, what are you to take away from that? And it's very much the same with the, the style of VR that we're using, where it is sandboxes and we've just taken the tools and presented them in the correct way. If you don't have that step, if we just sent students into a space and went, bring in some objects and see what you can do to, you know, regarding science, we'll get some sciencey objects, but will they know what they are by the end of that lesson? And will they have taken anything away from it? It's hard to say. Well said. I want to shift to avatars because there's so many questions that, obviously in VR can come up when it comes to avatars and identity. So do you guys allow students when they come into the live synchronous 
VR worlds to be able to change the way they look for their avatar? Or do you have rules in regards to how uh, they look inside the VR spaces? You know, avatars have been a really interesting part of working with students in VR. And we're not prescriptive about what the avatars look like. There's obviously a degree of appropriateness. However, the platforms we use are very good for only offering clothing and things that are appropriate. But we very much let them create their avatar to represent them. And part of that is because that representation is important and it's not always easy in an online school. You can put your webcam on and people can see you. So when you've got students that join our school specifically because perhaps they have anxiety issues, for example, we found the avatars really useful because it just offers that degree of separation to give them resilience and confidence. So if you've got a student who's decided to turn up to the lesson with, let's say, a motorcycle helmet on their avatar, as long as they're not running around, you know, distracting everybody and making a big thing about this helmet. Sure, if they're focused on the learning and they want to wear those clothes and that gives them the confidence to stand in front of their peers and explain what they've learned or even stand on a virtual stage and read from a script, which is exactly what happened the other day, hence the motorcycle anecdote. If that gets that student confident enough to do that, that's fantastic. So you're hitting really two notes. You've got the representation factor and students being able to display themselves as they are comfortable. And also if having their avatar look a certain way is what gives them that extra step of confidence to go for it, have a guess, try something and not be quite sure if it's going to work, but have a go anyway, then we think that's all, all good, really. I mean, the avatars, as I say, there's there's limits to what is acceptable, but the applications that we use are, are carefully selected, one of the reasons being what can and can't students do here. And so given that they've got that safe realm to work within, we're quite happy for them to do whatever they need to to their avatars to engage with the learning fully. Yeah. And many of these applications that we're using usually will have over top of their head, their names. So they're not anonymous and you know that no one's just sort of um, jumped into your VR lesson and they're not part of the class in the first place. So that's well said. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the one piece of uh, sort of representation, I suppose, that we do insist on is it's got to be your actual name over your head. Beyond that, as long as we can tell who you are and you're engaged with your lesson, it's all good. Um, and of course, there's layers and layers of safeguarding to to the apps that we use from, you know, room codes and passwords that we change after every lesson. So that because, as you said before, what we don't want is students misusing the classroom space. Um, so those classrooms are closed after every lesson. It's a little bit like the old IT room booking service, which, you know, <laughs> <laughs> pros and cons to that as well. Uh, but in terms of the safety factor and everything, we're comfortable with the way that things are set up to an extent that students looking how they want to look is not a problem for us. Amazing. The other thing that we're starting to see a trend is AI avatars. So I've had a, a few people on my show who have talked about their toying with the idea of having like, you know, Shakespeare, who has been programmed as an AI avatar, where you can go into a virtual world and ask you know, poignant questions to this AI avatar who has sort of been coded to behave and act and respond like Shakespeare. Have you thought about these yet? And where are you at in regards to maybe rolling something like this out? So we've used sort of AI based avatars to an extent in the sense that if we need students to do a history lesson uh, and there's key historical figures as part of that lesson, we will 
generate an avatar that looks like the right person. We'll give them a script. We'll make it sound like that person and they can go and push a button and that person will explain their own views. And I think there's value to that level of it in the sense that students are hearing it from a source and sometimes that resonates better than reading it from a page. Not in every case, and we could go for hours and hours about the merits of different learning styles, et cetera. Um, but having that option there for students is really good. And it, it adds to that immersion factor. We haven't used any live generative AI yet in virtual reality lessons, and there's a few reasons for it. The main one is making sure that all of the learning happening and all the information being given is accurate. And at the moment, the, those generative AIs are very, very impressive. But if there's 10% or even 1% of what is coming from an AI avatar is inaccurate, and that's what a student remembers and takes into an exam, that 1% becomes 100% a problem. So we're very closely following it. We're trying things out. We're working with partners to help push those factors that would help us to feel comfortable to use them. But we haven't gone sort of all in yet on the AI avatars. Nathan, I'm mindful of time. Is there anything else maybe that we haven't talked about that you think might be uh, key to this conversation? I think the interesting question that I'm often asked by people who have maybe not been using VR for learning as yet or exploring it, but are struggling to sell it to managers, etc., is how did you convince people to go along with it? And I think the key thing comes back to one of the things you asked me very early on, which was how are the students using VR? Is it on a screen or is it in a headset? And using the headset as the tool to sell the technology, I think, is really key. And I wanted to just throw that in there. And I'm sure other people have said similar things on your show before, but it answers that one key question, which is how do you get started? And I think if you are at a point where you know the VR is going to work for education, you've got some examples that you're happy to present and you can just put a headset on whoever it is that you need to convince for a few minutes, there's your selling point. Because I've yet to meet a person at, at any level, whether it's a student, teacher, manager, a CEO who having worn a headset is not convinced of how this could work for education. So I always like to throw that in as a as sort of my my little hint to get people started, because I think as with any technology, the more people who are having a go at this in whatever way they're comfortable and able to do so, that will drive the technology forward for all of us. And so I think it's really good that people are starting to pay attention to it. And if you can overcome that little hurdle to begin with, uh, that's that's sort of my little gift, I suppose, at the end here. And what an amazing gift it is, because the other question that especially the managers and people who hold the money often ask is like, show me the research. And what you just described is more a pragmatic type of research. And I, lots of people talk about it. And that is how amazed people are when they actually put on a headset and sort of see what's going on. And I don't necessarily know that research on the efficacy of VR can capture that moment, that pragmatic sort of look at how it's changing people's sort of viewpoint on learning. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. And I think that you can go onto Google and you can look up videos or images or whatever it may be of apps using VR and you can see it on a screen and it all looks lovely. But until you're in a headset and that T-Rex in front of you is to scale for you and you get it, it's really difficult to get that wow moment. But once you've seen that and you can understand, well, if I can look at a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex life size in front of me and that's quite cool, what else could I look at that is not only quite cool, but quite useful? 
you know, for education purposes. And so just getting the, that first experience in the headset, and it only needs to be a five minute experience, it can really win people over. I mean, the, the one anecdote that really smashed it home for me in terms of will or won't VR be useful for education was when we did a trial lesson with students and they were able to, to tell us the facts that they learned in that lesson. But the students were also telling us how the experience had made them feel claustrophobic in the space they had been put in. And mm. that is not something they could have experienced without either being in the place they were exploring for real or having it been all around them. And so you really do have to use the headset to fully get it. But once you've got it, it you, you can't forget it. Yeah, and to unlock conceptual understandings, like how do you, you know, the, the feeling claustrophobic, you can't really get that by reading it in a textbook or, or looking at the definition. You have to be able to feel it. It's, you know, it's just something that has to be experienced. It can't be read, so to speak. So well said. How can people get a hold of you if they want to learn a little bit more about what you're doing to disrupt education? Yeah, so if they want to find out a little bit more about Kings Into High specifically, they can go to kingsintohigh.co.uk or follow on the socials. Uh, best place to see what I'm up to specifically is on LinkedIn, so at ND O'Grady on LinkedIn. Uh, and I'm posting quite regularly there some, some images and such of the types of experiences that we're using. So hopefully that can inspire others to have a go to. Yeah, this morning I just read a post that you did where uh, you highlighted what your Spanish teachers were doing and it looked amazing. So well done. Yeah, I mean, my, my colleague built some really impressive MFL lessons this year. Um, and actually what, what we found out last year was as much as science, geography, history, etc. are obvious use cases for VR, we were astounded by how well it worked for MFL. And it's just that degree of being in a classroom and pretending that you're in a restaurant is great <laughs> for your role play. Actually being in the restaurant with people having roles and things going on around you suddenly that use of language becomes purposeful and authentic. Uh, and so my colleague Ruth has done a, a fantastic job with bringing the MFL stuff to life. Amazing. Nathan, thanks so much for taking your time out of your busy day to be on the show. Thank you very much. This has been great.